Thank Luke and Dale and the whole choir for working so hard in presenting this music to us this morning. I have to say the whole Reformation concert last night was of um, that inspirational quality and uh, had that impact and be able to sit through an hour, an hour and a half to, have a, to be immersed in the great music of the Reformation, songs of worship and praise it was a very beautiful thing. And then to hear it, some of it again this morning is wonderful. So thank you very, very much. I'm going to ask you to open up your Bibles with me to Romans, the uh, chapter. I started to say the Gospel of Romans. It is the Gospel of Romans. The book of Romans in chapter 3. And momentarily I'll be reading verses 21 to 26, which is not quite as long as um, the text that is uh, listed in your printed out in your worship bulletin. Um, but I'm going to ask you to join with me in prayer. I'd like to make a couple of comments, introductory, and then, uh, and then get into this message, please. Can we pray together? Our Father in heaven, in these moments we are now gathered in a sh- under a shaft or in a shaft of great light, the very presence of the Holy Spirit. sent to us to show us that your word is true, to show us what it says so that we can see it and feel it and embrace it. This light of your Holy Spirit is so necessary in our hearts and in our lives and together for us as we're gathered now as a church that if your Holy Spirit were not here, we would just be beating the air with words and vainly trying to understand. So we look to your spirit to work in us and with us now for the glory of Christ. Amen. Interestingly, Martin Luther, the reformer you've heard a lot about in the last few weeks, described the verses I'm about to read, verses 21 to 26, as the chief point and the very central place of the epistle of Paul to Rome and the very central place of the whole Bible. Leon Morris, great commentator, wonderful scholar, describes these verses as possibly the most important single paragraph ever written. So as I read the text to you now, I'd like you to be thinking about why they might say such things. What is it about this this passage that is so compelling to them? And this is what we read, beginning in verse 21. Paul writes, But now, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation in His blood and to be received by faith. And this was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over the former sins. In other words, he'd forgiven the sins of people who'd gone before and turned to him even before Christ ever underwent 
his ordeal, and it is to show his righteousness as the present time so that God might be just, so that he is just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That is our text. Now, why would these people say this text might be the most important paragraph ever written in the history of the world? I think that to answer the question, to help us get at it, I, I just draw your attention to how our text actually begins. It begins with the, just the two words, but now. But now. And that these verses are declaring that in, in Christ, God has done something entirely new. This is a but now thing he's talking about. Something entirely different. And that it is this new and very different thing that God has done that alone secures the salvation of a human being. Now if that's so, what do we say about everything God has ever said before? What do we say about everything God has ever done before? Do we dismiss it? Is it now replaced is it displaced and the answer is that everything God had ever said before everything that God had ever done before anticipated this new thing the law and the prophets Paul says bear witness to this well if this is true though again what does this say about the human race about humanity and Paul's answer is that the history of the human race shows the necessity for this new thing and this different thing. The passage that precedes our passage today that led up to the but now is Romans 1, 18 to chapter 3, verse 20. It was a long passage, and in that passage, Paul had underscored two things. Humankind's relentless rebellion against God, a relentless rebellion that suppresses the truth of God in unrighteousness. That was one thing he emphasized. And the second thing was our failed attempts to justify ourselves in the midst of this rebellion. And he even applies this failure to justify ourselves to Israel, though God had given to Israel his law, which if it's kept certainly renders a man or shows or proves that a man is righteous. But now, what is this new thing that is so anticipated? What is this new thing that is so necessary? And Paul's resounding answer, very easy, very simple, this new thing is the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God. And here he calls it the righteousness of God apart from the law in verse 21. He calls it the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe in verse 22. It is the righteousness of God. Now we think of God's righteousness perhaps, and I think rightly, you know, it could certainly be a reason for his, his condemning us through the law. The righteousness of God is seen in the commands he gives us and the demands that he places upon, upon us as his creatures made in his image, created to be like him, to reflect him in who we are and in the innermost being of our hearts. We might well think of the righteousness of God as something that would bring to us a condemnation. But here, what Paul is saying is that the righteousness of God is now manifested in such a way in order to forgive and to restore us. 
This is what's so new and so different. To forgive us so that we are forgiven and we are restored to God apart from law. You know, it is, honestly, it's righteousness that we lack. Righteousness is our greatest need. I mean, there is no distinctly human righteousness. Honestly, the only thing that's distinctively human is unrighteousness. And only if God places his righteousness on us can we be delivered from our unrighteousness and delivered from God's righteous judgment against us. Think about that. If God were to do this, I mean, if this was God's intent, if he were to place his righteousness upon us, if he were to share his righteousness with us, it would mean that he was making us who are unacceptable to him, acceptable to him. It would mean that he is making us his own, that, that he, is, he is forgiving rebels, and rebels would be repenting of their unrighteousness. That's exactly what it means. That's the implications of his placing his righteousness on us to make us his own. Paul first introduced the righteousness of God in the first chapter of Romans in verses 16 and 17. Because after declaring that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, he then explains how this is so. And he puts it this way. For in it, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Just as our text this morning says that the righteousness of God now is being manifested. But it raises that question, how can it be? I mean, honestly, how can it be? How can even a powerful God justify the ungodly? How can he do that? How is that not some fiction? Why should we have any confidence when we hear that that it is true. Why? How? How can this be? And Paul addresses the heart of this matter, beginning in verse 23. In one breath, in a single unbroken breath, he insists this. He says, all have sinned, past tense, past, well, perfect tense, something we've done continues to affect us. All have sinned and fall short, that's present tense, fall short of the glory of God and are justified. Now notice that. He says are justified. That is a passive voice. In other words, we do not justify ourselves. Our attempts to justify ourselves will always fail but rather, he's saying that it is God who justifies us. It is something that happens to us, that God does to us and for us. He makes us righteous. He justifies us so that we are righteous before him. And it goes on, and then this is the heart of it. He says, there are four parts of this. He says, we are justified by his grace as a gift. 
through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation in his blood to be received by faith. I want to look at each of those four points briefly with you. Paul says first that the righteousness of God comes to us by God's grace as a gift. Or other translations put it, freely, it's an emphatic word, freely by God's grace. Now what is God's grace? This is God's grace. God's grace is his doing for us absolute good. It's his doing absolute good for us, though we absolutely do not deserve it. And gift means that he does this absolute good for us who do not deserve it in exchange for nothing. Nothing. It is a gift. You say, well, what must I be, what must I do? What can I, what can I add? How do I qualify? What, what, what's on me in this arrangement? And the answer is, accept it. It is a gift. understand why that's so important that Paul says it because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God God could only grant us righteousness as an absolute gift and Paul's point is he does he does second point he makes is that this righteousness comes through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus now what does redemption mean redemption means the payment of a great price in order to free someone else from a terrible and hopeless condition. That's what redemption is. It's the payment of a great price to free someone else out of a hopeless and terrible condition. And Paul is speaking not just of the great price, but of the terrible price that Christ paid on the cross. Because there, God imposed on the Lord Jesus Christ, all the guilt of our unrighteousness. And there Jesus suffered all the penalty of God's justice. And after suffering, he died. It's through the redemption that's in Christ. And thirdly, the righteousness of God comes to us through Christ and Christ alone Because God put him forward, no one else. He put him, he put his only son forward as a propitiation in his blood. Now that's a big word. What in the world does that mean? It simply means this. Propitiation is a word that refers to a sacrifice that is made on behalf of another person or on behalf of another for a particular end, for a particular result. And that is so that the guilt of the once guilty party is removed from him or from her forever. Because that guilt is fully borne by the sacrifice that is offered, by the sacrifice that is made. And that guilt is fully borne by that sacrifice and it is annihilated by its bloody death. That's what the text is telling us about 
how, how can God justify the ungodly? Well, it's by God's grace as a gift. It could not be any other way. Through the redemption that is in Christ. Well, everyone who knows anything about Jesus and at least is open to it understands he, he did something incredibly costly. He surrendered his life on the cross. He laid it down, but there's more to it. God, in the cross of Christ, God was putting forward his son as a propitiation in his blood that in his dying, he was dying and suffering actually and bearing the penalty for our guilt. God had placed our guilt on his son. His son was representing us all. His son was there in a sense as a substitute for us all. He was bearing it completely. The guilt has been taken from us and put on him. And he died. The issue was settled. Scripture elsewhere says, God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Let me just say very simply this morning, it is not too much to say that the righteousness of God which he places on us is Jesus Christ. And fourth, so there are four things in that passage. We looked at grace as a gift and redemption and propitiation. But fourth, look at what Paul adds in verse 25, just after saying God put Jesus forward as a propitiation in his blood. This is what he tells us. There's a big comma there before the last phrase. Because what he's saying is that we receive this justification from God. We receive this righteousness from God. We receive this grace from God. We receive this gift from God. We receive this redemption through Christ. We receive this Jesus as our sin bearer and our justice satisfier. We receive him as our savior through faith, by faith. Now, there's nothing especially spiritual about belief or faith. You know, we trust and believe in people for all sorts of things all the time. And when we say we believe in someone or that we trust someone, what, that, what, what is happening, what we're doing, what it means is that we are opening ourselves up to receive them. I trust you. Because honestly, we may say, I'm a trusting person, but that's always potential and theoretical. <laughs> we, we're careful about who we open ourselves up to and who we receive and take to ourselves. We're careful about who we judge or determine is worthy of our trust. We're careful about that. It's not automatic. But when we believe the gospel, when this belief, this faith, when it, when it is invested in the gospel, when we believe the gospel, when we trust in Christ, you see, we have opened ourselves up to him. And we are accepting and we receive him. So that's the answer. How can God justify 
the ungodly? And the answer is, by grace as a gift, through the redemption, this price Christ has paid, it was a propitiatory sacrifice. In other words, he bore our guilt in his own body on the cross. He took it. God placed it upon him. It is removed from us. He satisfied God's justice completely. He died. It was over. And we received this through faith. Which is very, very good news. Part of accepting the truth about Christ, part of believing in, in Christ, trusting him and believing the gospel, involves accepting the necessity for Christ. That we cannot justify ourselves. That our attempts to justify ourselves are really thin covers for unrighteousness. So that instead of doing that, we look to God's justification of us grounded in his righteousness rather than our justification of ourselves that really are simply covers for our unrighteousness. It's very different. And really part of believing in Christ is accepting the necessity, the necessity for him, our necessity for him. I'll tell you that this faith in Christ involves such a heavenward shift in our thinking, such freedom and, and a, a new life that people honestly do feel themselves to be reborn spiritually. I mean, that's the way Martin Luther put it. That's the way John Wesley put it. And that's the way I'm not in their league, but experientially, because God is gracious in the same way to all who call upon him. That's the way I experienced it. When I became a Christian, after I became a Christian in November of 1972, back when the pterodactyls were still flying, <laughs> I remember walking to campus one day. And honestly, the sun seemed brighter. The building seemed cleaner. Everything looked different to me. The whole world looked different to me. And I remember thinking to myself, and I was unfamiliar with the Bible, I remember thinking to myself, I feel like I've been reborn. And it was true, I had. And it affected my whole orientation, even the way the world looked to that, that, uh, that tired college student's eyes. Just as the facts of the gospel then, the actual history of what God has done in Christ and through Christ, has made his righteousness possible for us. It is, I'm shifting a bit from the facts of the gospel to the message of the gospel. It is the telling of the story. It is the telling of the truth of what happened. It is by that that God places his righteousness within us and upon us. Because faith comes by hearing and hearing concerning the word of Christ. I'm saying our coming to faith is itself the work of God. Just as much as Christ's sacrifice for sin on the cross was the work of God. I say honestly this morning, we defend, we humans, we defend the myth of human righteousness at all costs when it comes to ourselves. 
when it comes to ourselves. Not so much when it comes to others. As a matter of fact, we can be rather quick to judge and we can be rather harsh to judge in the case of others, but not in the case of ourselves. There is, is there anything? You think about people in your experience of life with people. Is there anything people fight harder to hold on to than their own righteousness? Than their righteousness? What are they defensive about? Their righteousness. It means more to them than anything. Even if it means denouncing everyone else as unrighteous, even if it means resenting other people, even if it means hating other people, it it just doesn't matter. I'm telling you that this blind determination to be righteous, to justify ourselves, this blind determination works itself out in horrible ways. It destroys marriages. It ruptures communities. It leads to wars. It corrupts the very noblest human endeavors. We hold to the myth of human righteousness because we understand intuitively that we can't be complete if we're not righteous. We can't stand the idea. If we're not righteous, then there's something wrong with us and we cannot accept ourselves as unrighteous. But there is no distinctly human righteousness. There's only the righteousness of God. And unless we abandon the myth of our own righteousness, we will not accept the gift of God's righteousness in Christ. We won't. It's like a drug, this justification. It's like a compulsion of the Spirit to defend ourselves. Here's a quote from John Calvin. Let's put it up if we can. This is the way John Calvin put it. He said, we shall never be clothed with righteousness, with the righteousness of Christ, except we first know assuredly that we have no righteousness of our own. This is speaking to the necessity of Christ. God did a great and awesome work in manifesting his righteousness in Christ apart from the law, but no less work of God is necessary for us to recognize the unrighteousness in ourselves. But when we do, and when that happens, the way has been opened for us to receive the righteousness of God through faith in Christ. The way has been opened for us to believe in in him for who he is and what he truly did and why he came and to trust him as our savior. Now in a moment, not right now, Dion, but just in a moment, if I had to draw what I have spoken about this morning, if I had to put it in a picture, um, it might look like this. And Dion, Dion, go ahead and put it up. I hope you can see it. On the left is Christ, and he's holding in his arms. You see his right hand there. He's holding in his arm a beautiful white robe, pure. It has purple on the fringe or purple on it because it's a royal robe. It's the robe that a king would give his his child. So Christ is holding this beautiful white robe, and on the right is the man, the, the sinner, who's 
only clothed in rags. And even as he cries out to God, Christ is placing on him, clothing him in a garment of righteousness he could never, ever have imagined. And God accepts him as his own, as his son, even as he accepts Christ. He accepts him this way for the sake of Christ and for the glory of his son to, what's the word, vindicate, to celebrate the goodness of his son as the savior of human beings. God has done a new and different thing, but now, so that we can live a new and different life through faith in Christ. It is true that we are justified. God justifies us through faith in Christ. God clothes, clothes us in his righteousness through faith in Christ. It's totally and completely a free gift. It's for us to, to accept it to trust him, to believe it so, because he has said it so, and because Christ has made it so. Let's pray together. Father, we love you and we thank you for your mercy and your goodness to us in Christ. And I know that in the world today, within the church today, there's so much confusion over Jesus. This re re recovered truth, so beautifully encapsulated in the book of Romans, but not only there. It's just so easily forgotten, set aside, so easily wrapped up in, in ideas that were never part of the gospel. We thank him for Jesus. Freely he came to us. We paid nothing for Freely, he died. He paid a terrible price to redeem us. Freely, he made himself propitiation in his blood. He took upon himself all that you put upon him. Father and Son, through the Holy Spirit, your eternal plan displayed before humankind that you, dear triune God, would assume within yourself the penalty of your own justice in order to restore and forgive us. And we receive this through faith. Father, help us, I pray. Help us grow in our confidence in Christ as our Savior. Lord, cause us to lay down our, level, our rebel ways for sure. And may it be that when we call you Father, it's because we know you are our Father. And we call Christ Savior 
It's because we know he is our Savior. And it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.